Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then I would encourage you to go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a wet and windy afternoon here in the capital is Daisy Learmond. Daisy is a director at the Wright Tuition Company, Rochester LLP, an extra tuition company which provides online learning and on-site classes. Um, Daisy, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure, Daisy. Thank you. Um, Normally, at this point in the show, we tend to dive into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we approach the subject matter from that angle because it's proven to be such a significant challenge, hasn't it, for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourselves, being, of course, a training provider, to what extent has it actually affected you and your operations? Um, It has affected us dramatically. When the virus first broke out, um, our numbers halved in the first week. And then during lockdown, we completely closed our doors. And as every other business had to do, um, we thought on our feet to work out how we could continue to deliver our services. Mm. And that looked like lots of different things, really. We were recording lessons, uploading them using all this technology, um, organising Zoom lessons, virtual classes, um, as well as just emailing work to people. But it was just such a crazy time to sort of keep on top of all of the extra communication. And then we tentatively reopened in June, but with a reduction from our usual eight in a class, Mm. about eight to ten we have in a group, down to six. And still now we have fewer students attending than we would have had this time last year. I'd say just over half of our usual intake. And we would normally have a contingency fund, but before the first lockdown, we used it to um, to buy out one of our partners. It was all quite unlucky timing. Mm. Um, but thankfully, we, we did qualify for a government-backed loan, a bank-backed loan. Um, and that, that really helped us help take the strain off tremendously we've got six years to pay it back and just really hope that our business will bounce back um, within that time we're optimistic uh, about that though and we've got lots of exciting projects in the pipeline so just trying to remain positive And we could all use a little bit of a dose of positivity during this time because it is infectious and it is really helpful in lifting the uh, the morale. That's absolutely right. And when we talk about sort of that um, remote provision of education that you've been involved with at this point in time as well, do you think that's going to be a temporary fix or do you think that's perhaps going to be something that's going to be lasting more into the long term, even when hopefully COVID-19 is no longer an issue? Yes, certainly. I think it's it's here to stay. I think it's a really useful tool for so many reasons. I mean, we really believe in the small group face-to-face model and nothing can really take away how effective that way of working is. But having the ability to connect with people who might be further away, who can't get into work for any reason, children who have missed class or 
you know, so many situations where being able to work remotely um, makes sense. And also it could be a really useful tool for, for larger schools as well. You know, this idea that children mm. have to come into a school setting every single day, it, it's not the most effective way of learning. So much of that is crowd control. You've got lots of social issues where the children are possibly mixing and not mm. the way you'd really want them to. And by having remote online lessons, you can contain the groups to much smaller groups. You can't interact quite in the same way, but I think we're all adapting um, to, to how to use it more effectively. Um, and, and it could be a really good mix of perhaps going into school once or twice a week and then having that backed up with some remote learning. You know, we're not adverse to, to new ideas. And I think, you know, our country as a whole and the government are sort of waking up to the realisation that perhaps, especially with education, just because it's always been done one way, mm. it doesn't mean it's the right way or suitable for our, you know, for our society, the way that it's going. And of course, we've seen since September that pupils are now back in schools, albeit under new sort of COVID secure procedures. But it is not necessarily the case for all educators, particularly extra tuition uh, providers such as yourselves. Um, so for people in your position, can you ever see the conventional classroom space ever coming back in vogue the way it was? Or do you think it's always bound to be now maybe a hybrid of the two sort of remote provision and then very distanced in the actual classroom? I think it will always be very popular coming into the centre. Um, you know, one of the main reasons why parents come to us in the first place is because they find it difficult to motivate their children, especially most of the children that we have being primary age, they, they're not really expected to self-motivate. So if you are, if you have a child of that age trying to learn online, really they have to have a parent very nearby monitoring that learning um, and and one of the reasons why parents like to bring children to us is because you know they live busy lives so they can drop the child off and the child does the learning and the parent comes back and they don't have to monitor them for that whole you know time so I, you know I, I still think it, it is I think it's going to bounce back to what it was before um, we don't have huge classes anyway and like I said the whole reason why our model works is because it's based around that small group model um, so I, I think it will be just as popular, but I think where the online, you know, that, that online learning will just be an extra arm to businesses like mine so that we can offer it on top of, or, you know, it could be so rather than children having to catch up the work um, mm. themselves at home, you know, that they would join the Zoom lessons to, to catch up lessons and things like that that would be done in this way. Um, I, I think there will be lots of new businesses who are who are starting out now trying to, to, to run tuition businesses solely online. And so that's mm -hmm. going to be quite a lot of competition in that market too. I really want to stick to what we know how to do best, and, and that really is on the ground, face-to-face um, -face teaching. Um, so I really hope that it will come back to what it was. Um, and I, I, I feel like the hybrid idea is possibly more useful to mm. to the state, to, to the schools, you know, to the full-time schools. That's where I think it's more interesting. And just reflecting on sort of the last few months and the steps you've had to take to adapt to this new reality that we've all been faced with, is there anything that you can look back and say that you've really learned from this experience of crisis management, if we call it that? Um, 
I think I have learned quite a lot about the way I lead. Mm. Um, I mean, things that I already knew were important to do, like listening. Um, you know, we, we run this small tuition centre because it's what the local environment around us demands. It's a very much supply and demand situation, but I felt that we've really needed to listen to our immediate team, our customers, the community, the government, you know, really taking into consideration um, the, the, the feelings of everybody to deliver something that, that's suitable to the most number of people possible. Um, the business, we started it over 30 years ago. Um, it was my mother who ran it from her bedroom trying to study and it just grew mm. and grew organically and um, we never set out with a business model never considered ourselves business leaders as such we only ever saw ourselves as educators and all we wanted to do and still do to this day was give children extra time to go over what they'd already learnt at school it's about giving them an opportunity to revise the national curriculum in real time so that they have a solid understanding and that's something that some parents can do themselves, but for a plethora of reasons, others can't. Um, and you know, sometimes children come to us and find that their school is a week or so behind where we are in the curriculum. Mm. And that gives them a huge boost of confidence as they can sit in the class at school and say they've already learned how to do a particular topic. Um, and so businesses like ours really work with and complement the state school communities. I just wish there was less of a political debate around tuition and more room for collaboration with state organisations because we all want the same thing at the end of the day. Um, so I'm trying to reach out to make more part new partnerships with the local community and the schools. And, you know, so for so long we felt like we were sort of in competition in a way with these other educational bodies, you know, being a private entity. And, you know, every time you speak to somebody about what you do, you would sort of have to gauge how that person's political stance is on, on, on the whole idea. Um, but I'm hoping now, after all of this, that we um, that we can, you know, create some new interesting um, partnerships. And that's something that we're, you know, one of the things I was saying before, that we've got interesting things in the pipeline. Um, mm. We have just joined partnership with a large grammar school, um, it's the Chatham Grammar for Girls. Um, to provide extra tuition from their premises. It's the first time we've had a had a partnership like this with um, with a big local grammar school. And the idea behind that is to help close what we call the grammar school gap. Um, so we're offering 25% of our places for free to children in receipt of free school meals. And we want to um, improve the skills of the children who reside in the local area, mm. ensuring that they have a chance to compete with children who sometimes travel a huge distance to claim our grammar school places. Um, so we have a catchment limit on who can sign up for these classes. Um, but yeah, there's always been a huge political argument around grammar schools and whether it's fair to have a society where some can afford tuition and others can't. So uh, with various, you know, our, our various charitable connections, sponsorships, scholarships, and um, these not-for-profit not projects, um, we aim to help close the gap. So, you know, I really hope that what we've learnt from from this, and you know, what the local community and government can learn from this, is that we need to pull together. Mm. Um, so, There's a huge amount yeah. to be taken from that, for certain. Um, 
there needs to be further collaboration to help increase accessibility in these areas. You are absolutely yeah. right. And I think it's going to be so, so vital to bridging those gaps um, that you've, of course, mentioned there in educational attainment. It's so, so, so important. And we have seen collaboration on an unprecedented scale during this time, and it's good to see that furthermore encouraged. And it's embodied no mm. more by the fact that we've seen the pharmaceutical companies um, in the quest for a vaccine sharing intellectual property for the first time and removing different steps of bureaucracy. So so that is one example of the kind of collaboration we have seen. And let us hope that we can continue to see that in earnest mm. over the uh, the coming months, for sure. Mm. Um, as an educator, I'm sure you're well aware that there are a lot of young people out there that may be just coming out of education completely or maybe entering higher education that are probably a little bit downhearted by what the COVID-19 pandemic is doing to mm. their sort of employment prospects alongside the overall economy. So from your position, what would you say to really inspire those youngsters out there that may well be listening to this as well to really get them to pick their heads up uh, and recognise the opportunities um, out there? Gosh, um, I'd like to say something inspiring. Um, I would say, um, you know, it, it, is a, it is a difficult position to be in um, for youngsters, you know, trying trying to get into the workplace now. Um, and I, you know, always advise to just take take time to explore what, what you love doing because it is great if you can work in an industry that you're truly passionate about. But mm. I think often there's a lot of pressure for that to be the case. And if you don't end up where you thought you'd be or, um, you know, you've not quite got there yet, just remember you're not a job description. What you do to make money doesn't have to define you. And um, and I would say just keep working at those foundation skills because you really will be surprised how much you will call on your basic math and English knowledge um, while in all manner of workplaces. But, you know, the, the work will come and I, I, I am positive and optimistic. Um, and, you know, I think if we all just knuckle down, um, then, you know, it will it will work out. Let's certainly hope that it does over the course of the uh, the next few months and indeed years, because it does seem that we may well be in this very much for the uh, the long haul. And I know that we can't really look too far ahead at the moment because of the uncertain landscape. We can only really look days and weeks ahead at best. Um, but if we could pretend we have a crystal ball for a moment, Daisy, and look ahead, perhaps just sort of 12 months from now, um, in an ideal world, where is it that you would like the right tuition company to be by this time next year? And what is it that you're really hoping to have achieved in some of those initiatives that you're going on with at the moment? Well, I hope by that time um, our numbers will have improved back to our um, usual capacity. Um, we had a satellite school running um, from Sittingbourne, also um, another area further out to the east, so we hope to have that back on its feet. And also really working on our um charity partnerships and our partnerships with the local grammar schools to help improve the skills of those local children um, overall. You know, I really, really believe in this, this grammar school partnership and um, they've recently been taken over by, um, I think for the past couple of years now, they've been under the umbrella of the University uh, Academies Trust and they're doing some wonderful work taking workshops around um, primary schools in the area to really kind of excite children about um, the prospect of what grammar school education can be mm. um, and so I really support that so I'm just excited excited to be more involved in, in the local community and um, you know the local educational community um, 
and yes, you know, cross our fingers and hope <laughs> and hope that it all comes round. Certainly hope so, and um, I really do hope that there is some positive news to share before too long um, on that front for sure. And just given how uncertain the landscape currently is and how many variables there still are in all of this, Daisy. I actually do think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in the near future and have you back on the programme once things are starting to become a bit clearer, just so that we can understand exactly what sort of shape things are starting to take. And we can see just how far along you are in some of those initiatives and helping bridge those gaps. Yes, I'd love to. Yeah. I think that would be really, really positive, certainly. And I do hope that there's some good news to share at that point in time. Um, In the meantime, though, Daisy, please do take care and stay safe with all that is still going on until we do hopefully get an opportunity to speak again. Thank you. I'd also love to extend that to all of the listeners tuning into the programme today as well. Do please stay well, look after yourselves and please be considerate of others because it does make such a key difference in saving lives during this most trying time. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Daisy Learmond, Director at the Right Tuition Company, onto today's programme. Next up on the show today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is a politician who enjoyed a distinguished career despite being blind from birth, serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, as well as serving in a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of Tony Blair during the latter's premiership. His political exploits saw him elevated to Parliament's Upper House back in August 2015, and I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to catch up with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19. Uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can. Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same 
products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain, and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, 
that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, Those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People have criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.